Uh, when I first wrote down the title of this lecture, which is The Delights and Dangers of Ambiguity, I had no idea that the word dangers would itself acquire an ambiguous meaning by the time the lecture was delivered. I had had in mind aesthetic delights and dangers only, but uh, a week or so ago, a formidable new danger was thrust upon us when our Secretary of State announced that the armed forces of the United States had been put on worldwide alert in response to what he called, quote, the ambiguity of some of the actions and communications, unquote, regarding respectively movements of Soviet troops and statements of Russian diplomats. And now that is dangerous ambiguity. Dramatizing the dangers that accompany a lack of clarity in human communication. Those are clear and present dangers. Failure of communication can lead to a complete breakdown and to disastrous consequences. Then why this constant emphasis on the beauty of ambiguity, as I've put it, on which I was challenged last week by my blonde inquisitor, if you remember, the answer must be obvious. Ambiguity may be a useful tool in diplomacy, as it is in art, but it can be catastrophic when diplomacy turns into hard fact, just as it can be perfectly glorious in the arts. Aesthetics, see. Politics, no. Now, part of the danger is that ambiguity is in itself an ambiguous word. That is, it has more than one meaning. And I think that before we go one step further into our inquiry, we would do well to have a solid dictionary definition or two. Or two, that's the problem. There are two distinct definitions arising from the dual meaning of the prefix ambi, which can signify bothness, that is, being on two sides at once, and also signify aroundness, or being on all sides at once. The first connotation, bothness, yields such words as ambidextrous, ambivalent, and so on, all of which imply duality. Whereas the second connotation, aroundness, conditions such words as ambience, ambit, and so on, which all relate to the general surround, thus implying vagueness. Uh, Webster gives these two definitions of ambiguous. One, doubtful or uncertain, and two, capable of being understood in two or more possible senses. Now, Webster goofed because that two or more presents an ambiguity of its own. You see, two or more than two is an ambiguity. So let's delete or more for our purposes of the moment so that we, at least, can be clear in our human communication. Our definition now reads, capable of being understood in two possible senses. Now, everything we've been saying about puns, antithesis, zugma, symmetry, chiasmus, yang and yin, lingam and yoni, upbeat and downbeat, strong, weak, all this has involved duality. And at some point, we've always arrived, if you recall, at a manifestation of ambiguity which arose from the basic concept of two-ness. And this idea of ambiguity has been an underlying string running through all three lectures so far, like Henry James' figure in the carpet that we mentioned last week. But we've 
only lightly touched on it and only intermittently sounded that string. In our first lecture, for instance, we traced a growing chromaticism <laughs> in musical history based on the accretion of more and more remote overtones of the harmonic series. You remember that old harmonic series? As they were gradually accepted into common practice. And with that growing chromaticism, we found a corresponding growth of ambiguity with a resulting need to contain that chromaticism, to control it through the basic powers of diatonicism, the tonic dominant structure of tonal music. And we found that this containment of chromaticism within diatonicism reached a state of perfect equilibrium in the music of Bach, initiating a golden age of roughly a hundred years, an age of imperturbable tonal stability. But we also realized that this perfectly controlled containment is in itself an ambiguity in that it presents two simultaneous ways in which to listen to music via the contained chromaticism and via the containing diatonicism. And similarly, in our second lecture on syntax, we found new ambiguities in Mozart's G minor symphony, if you recall, arising from violated symmetry, deep structure symmetries, which were converted by linguistic transformational procedures into beautifully ambiguous surface structures. We were then in a position to recognize and even account for certain musical phenomena whose beauty depends on ambiguous procedures. For instance, do you remember, do you recognize these few bars? Adagetto from Mahler's Fifth Symphony ever since Death in Venice invaded the silver screen. Now, why the swooning? After all, it's nothing but a dominant leading to a tonic. Three conventional upbeats in F major leading to an appoggiatura downbeat, which then resolves again in the most conventional way. Do you remember about appoggiaturas from our Mozart analysis, those leaning notes, remember? Dissonant tones that bear a special weight and tension that must be resolved, notes that lean on their resolutions. Well, this is one of them. And it does resolve, as you see, just as conventionally as in Mozart. Resolution. Then what's the magic secret? Ambiguity as if you didn't know. You see, all that preliminary vamping on the harp is first of all syntactically vague. We have no idea what beat we're on or what meter we're in, and already that's one ambiguity. What's more, this is setting up the key of the piece, F major, by suggesting its tonic triad, but only suggesting it because the fundamental note, the root of that triad, 
F itself is missing and only two-thirds of the triad is given us, the A and the C. Roaming through several octaves, it's true, but still only two different notes. So we're not yet really sure that our key is going to be F major. It's exactly like that kid's teasing chant that uh, we examined for its universality in our first lecture. Remember, nya, 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 nya. Those two notes. And do you remember how we found that the tonic fundamental of those two overtones is not sung, but is present by implication only? That fundamental. Well, that omission, the absence of this tonic, makes us only possibly aware of F major, because the two notes we hear could turn out to be two-thirds of a whole other triad, namely this one, A minor. So automatically we're facing another ambiguity. Which of these keys are we in, this or this? And that ambiguity in itself lends a certain extra poignancy to the teasing tune of the kids, nah, 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 because it makes it even more hurtful due to the implication of something else, something which could be nasty. Now, of course, our beloved Mahler isn't nasty at all, quite the contrary. But the principle is identical, because again, which of the two keys are we in? Uh, as the three upbeats begin, we'd almost vote for A minor, because there's that A in the cello part, which is the lowest part. But no, it sneakily descends to G, and then to F. Oh, it feels so good. We're home in F major. But there's still an unresolved tug at the heart in that appoggiatura up here in the melody. And when it resolves, we just melt away with the pleasure of fulfillment. Enough ambiguity? We've barely begun. Because last week, we ran into yet a new ambiguity. Neither phonological nor syntactic, but a third one, a semantic ambiguity, a real problem in meaning. There we were, if you remember, chin to chin with Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, a piece brimming with non-musical birds and bees, and defying it to mean anything other than its own intrinsic musical metaphors. But to whatever extent we succeeded in avoiding the peasants and the cuckoos and the elephants, uh, if you remember, one thing remained brightly unambiguous, and that was that this Beethovenian experiment in semantic conflict, namely program music, was still under perfect classical control. All its ambiguities, whether chromatic, structural, or metaphorical, were classically contained in Augustan fashion. Remember that Beethoven himself said he was trying only to suggest feelings of country life. He was not indulging in tone painting, as he put it. The pastoral is therefore still a monument of the golden age. But now, as we begin to move forward through the 19th century, we're going to find all three strains of ambiguity increasing sharply in both quantity and intensity. And before the century's finished, 
we'll find this epidemic increase leading us to Webster's other definition of ambiguity, absolute vagueness. And that's where the aesthetic delights of ambiguity start turning into dangers. The irony of all this is that it was Beethoven himself who started this ambiguity inflation. He was a walking, living ambiguity in himself, at once the last great classicist and the first great romantic. Just think of the scherzo from his Hammerklavier Sonata, which is based on the most innocent little diatonic tune. But now, just listen to how the movement ends. from home. Are we home again? Yes, we are, but it was nip and tuck there for a minute. And what about this passage later on, which bridges the slow movement into the final fugue? Let's listen to this unbelievable passage. suddenly in B-flat. That's ambiguity rampant. We started thinking we were in A major, right? And then we went wandering, lost to the world, till we suddenly wound up in B-flat. But mind you, all that blind wandering isn't so blind. It's all a modified series of tonic dominant changes. except just before the end, when it's going mad. Surprise, and... And we're in B-flat, into the final fugue. I'm sure I don't have to mention the obvious structural ambiguity of this incredible passage, the elusiveness of the rhythm alone. almost savage intensity of the acceleration. And all that written without a single bar line to point the way. Now it's evident that with Beethoven, the Romantic Revolution had already begun. You can see that. Bringing with it the new artist, the artist as priest and prophet. This new artist had a new self-image, which he promulgated onto everybody else. He felt himself possessed of divine rights, of almost Napoleonic powers and liberties, especially the liberty to break rules and make new ones, to invent new forms and concepts, all in the name of greater expressivity. His mission was to lead the way to a new aesthetic world, 
confident that history would follow his inspirational leadership. And so there suddenly exploded onto the scene Byron, Jean-Paul, Delacroix, E.T.A. Hoffmann, Schumann, Chopin, Victor Hugo, Berlioz, all proclaiming new freedoms. And where music was concerned, the new freedoms affected formal structures, harmonic procedures, instrumental color, melody, rhythm, all of these were part of a new expanding universe at the center of which lay the artist's personal passions. From the purely phonological point of view, the most striking of these new freedoms was the new chromaticism, now employing a vastly enriched palette and bringing with it the concomitant enrichment of ambiguity. The air was now filled with volcanic chromatic sparks, and more and more the upper partials of that harmonic series were taking on an independence of their own, playing hide-and-seek with their sober diatonic elders, like defiant kids in the heyday of revolt. And the composers themselves now had something of the defiant child in them, along with their priest and prophet images. I wish we had time to explore all their adventures, ranging from the highly personal tenderness of Schubert's modulations, all the way to the almost diabolical antics of Berlioz. We can't do all that in one lecture, but let's take just a minute to touch on Schumann. I can't ignore him. Gloriously mad Schumann, a master of ambiguity. Only think of a Schumann song, such as Zwielicht, with its twilight introduction, or of the fascinating punning and anagramming that goes on in a piano work like Carnival. But Schumann's really exciting sallies into ambiguity are his rhythmic ones, like this festival of asymmetry at the end of Carnival. You know this? <laughs> Now that's all music in 3-4 time, but you'd never know it, would you? It's all been beautifully distorted by an overlay of twos and fours, and the mind reels with all these built-in ambiguities. It's like being in one of those Luna Park eccentric machines where you can never find your balance. Or take the typical Schumann device of treating a string of syncopations as though they were strong beats, all strong beats. He does it over and over again in dozens of pieces as he does in this variation from his uh, symphonic etudes, if I can play it. <laughs> But the main thing is, would you believe that every one of those melodic notes is off the beat? Not on the beat, but off the beat. Listen. Again, the mind reels. That's Schumann for you. And Chopin, well, we can't ignore Chopin either. With his own delicious brand of chromatic ambiguity, which is rather like harmonic seduction.
sensuous and teasing, like this passage from his Etude in Thirds. Mind you, an Etude, imagine being sexy in an Etude. You hear all those implied harmonic gorgeousnesses, and the implications all arise from ambiguities. Are we in the major or minor? Is this tonal or modal? Are those ninth chords or diminished sevenths? Is it the Phrygian mode? Now, you may not understand one word I've just said, but no matter, as long as you feel how this music hovers between something and something else, that's enough. You feel the ambiguous quality. Perhaps this bit of Chopin will make the ambiguous point more clearly, if, if that sentence is linguistically possible. Uh, this is one of Chopin's 50-odd mazurkas, and very odd they are. Quirky little masterpieces, every one. This one begins like this. Now, did that begin on a downbeat or an upbeat or where? And besides, what key is it in? We don't know. It's sort of in F. It could be the subdominant of C. It could be the submediant of A minor. It could be the Lydian mode. Well, there we go again. Never mind. It's only the introduction. Now listen to the tune. minor, there's a possibility, but no, chromatic side-slipping, little dying falls, again, F, F-ish, again, E minor, chromatic, we're nowhere. Ah, at last, a cadence in A minor. So it was in A minor all the time. Talk of subtlety, of elusiveness, seductiveness. And then after, in the same little mazurka, after contrasting sections, reprises, after it's all over, Chopin gives the final ambiguous twist in the very last bars where he, again, has arrived at A minor. We're absolutely sure it's A minor. Isn't that convincing, the A minor? And then come the very last bars, which are exactly like the first bars. That's the end of the piece. What key are we in? Sort of F? Lydian mode? Well, certainly not A minor. We're left hovering as we began in a bliss of ambiguities. And they're all ambiguities born of intrinsic musical metaphors. You see, the meanings, as we discovered last week, belong to purely musical semantics. Meanings all derived from a combination of phonological and syntactic transformations. Now, I've been speaking of ambiguity 
as an aesthetic function. And this may seem to carry the implication that the more ambiguous music gets, the more expressive it becomes. Okay, but does that mean, for instance, that chromaticism is better than diatonic plain talk? Does it represent an advance in musical progress? Many people ask me that all the time. Is Chopin better than Mozart because he's more chromatic than Mozart? If so, then shouldn't Bartok be better than Beethoven? And the Beatles better than Bessie Smith? Is Keats more chromatic than Shakespeare? And Swinburne more than Keats? And therefore better than Keats? Foolish questions. Needless to say, I don't have to point out that it's not a question of better. These questions relate not to qualitative changes in art, but to quantitative changes. And of course Chopin is more chromatic than Mozart, but that doesn't make him a greater composer than Mozart. And of course Swinburne is more chromatic than Keats, but in what sense is Keats chromatic at all? What do I mean by chromatic in terms of literature? What is chromaticism in poetry? Well, I mean it to be the freedom to pursue that one single phonological aspect of poetic language, sound itself, to indulge in it for its own sake. A chromatic poet, as it were, seeks out new sonic relationships, just as a chromatic composer does. Relationships that are subtler, more intricate, exploiting the alphabet to its sonic limits. Such a poet concentrates on assonance, alliteration, dark vowels or bright ones, smooth labial continuance or abrupt plosive consonants, every kind of sonorific device. And by so doing, he shifts his emphasis toward this sonic area, away from syntax, away from semantics, even at the expense of clarity. Now, all this, of course, makes for ever-increasing ambiguity, always in the name of greater and greater expressivity. Let me try to read you a few lines of Gerard Manley Hopkins, and I think you'll immediately grasp what I mean. <coughs> These are the <coughs> opening lines of a poem called The Leaden Echo. How to keep, is there any, any, is there none such, nowhere known some, bow or brooch or braid or brace, lace, latch or catch or key to keep back beauty, keep it beauty, beauty, beauty from vanishing away? Words, words, glorious words, or mud, mud, glorious mud. <laughs> I prefer the former. If we didn't know that was Hopkins, we might almost think it was James Joyce. But imagine, these words were written way back in 1880. Is there any, any, is there none such, nowhere known some? It's, it's almost music, and chromatic music at that. Hopkins is wallowing in gorgeous sounds, and so are we, his readers. But what is gained thereby and what is lost? Well, what is lost is easily told, structural clarity, obviously, immediacy of meaning. The basic meaning of those lines, from a purely semantic point of view, is simply this, how to keep beauty from vanishing away, question mark. But it's a long, long trail, a winding Joycean trail of thick, sonorous beauty that leads from how to keep 
to vanishing away. So what is gained thereby? Well, an expressivity, an intense new expressivity, born of sheer sound, rich, complex sound that doubles and redoubles on itself, creating new meanings of its own, sonorous meanings, non-semantic meanings. Listen to this. Isn't this practically Ulysses? This is uh, the end of that poem. When the thing we freely forfeit is kept with fond or a care, fond or a care kept than we could have kept it, kept far with fond or a care, and this is the real Ulysses part here, finer fond or a care kept, where kept? Do but tell us where kept, where? Yonder, what high is that? We follow, now we follow, yonder, yes, yonder, yonder, yonder. This ecstatic poetry has a chromaticism that leads the ear far away from the lucid C majorish meaning of how to keep beauty from vanishing away, or my heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. Instead, the ear is led toward the new pleasures of sheer sonority and on to bigger and better ambiguities, then on to Ezra Pound and to Dylan Thomas, to James Joyce, and to the ultimate reductio, Gertrude Stein, naturally, who wrote, among other things, let Lucy, Lily, Lily, Lucy, Lucy, let Lucy, Lucy, Lily, 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 and phonology has virtually taken over. Syntax is all but vanished, leaving a semantic vacuum. It would seem with all this talk of chromatic poetry that I've strayed from the main line, music, but there's method in the madness because the romantic revolution we're discussing brought with it a new interaction of poetry and music, in fact, of all the arts. It's as though the arts became more interested in one another, as did the artists themselves. They began to intermingle their various artistic media drawing closer together in mutual influence. They became painters of words, composers of pictures, poets of tones. Any aesthetic innovation, such as heightened chromaticism in music, would immediately find its counterpart in painting or exert an observable influence on poetry. The chromatic outpourings of Berlioz are mirrored in the slashing expressionism of Delacroix or the multicolored visions of Shelley, we begin to see a movement taking place, the romantic movement. We begin to see artists as interrelated groups, Berlioz with Byron, Chopin with Georges Sand and Delacroix, Sch Schumann with E.T.A. Hoffmann and Jean Paul. Stendhal was suddenly writing a book on Rossini. Schubert and Schumann were setting their favorite poets, especially Heine. And composers like Liszt and Wagner were omnivorous readers. They not only read, but they wrote words, criticisms, memoirs, poetry, and in some cases, the entire texts of their own operas. This was a romantic breakthrough. Just try to imagine Bach or Mozart as literary buffs. Ausgeschlossen. <laughs> Now, the pivotal point in all this interdisciplinary action is, as we know, Beethoven. There he was, still the great master of the classical Viennese school, already casting adumbrations of the musical and extra-musical fusions that were to come. 
a detailed programmatic symphony such as the Pastoral or the Ninth Symphony with actual sung words in it. These were truly romantic innovations. There had never been anything like them before. But it remained for Berlioz, who adored Beethoven, to grab on to that extra musical concept, that new semantic ambiguity, and make it his banner. His first major work, the Symphonie Fantastique, written barely three years after Beethoven's death, mind you, was like the pastoral symphony raised to the nth power in terms of programmatic meaning. And from there on, it was literary attachment all the way, whether to Shakespeare or to Byron or to Virgil, from whose Aeneid he fashioned the libretto of his own opera, Les Troyans. Do you know that in all of Berlioz's output, there exists only one little piece that does not have literary associations, one little violin piece in a lifetime of composing, something called reverie and caprice for violin and orchestra, not worth looking at. But everything he wrote was either opera, oratorio, cantata, songs, or very explicit program music. So there is a dramatic change from Beethoven's programmaticism to that of Berlioz, a qualitative change. Literary ideas are now inextricably tied in with music. Berlioz wants us to be aware of specific literal meanings, not merely of suggested feelings as in Beethoven's Pastoral. Those jonquils and daisies which last week were only suggested are now really blazing with color, and those mosquitoes really bite and all this now forces the listener into a new auditory attitude. He's got to listen on two levels at once, a purely musical level and an extra musical one. See, when we listen to Berlioz, we must perforce embrace this new semantic ambiguity. We're not permitted to ignore it, as we did last week or tried to with Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. Berlioz is the arch-romantic. And it's always oddly surprising to recall how close he was to Beethoven, not only in terms of period, but in terms of stylistic and formal elements as well. We tend to think of Berlioz as the essential romantic madman and of Beethoven as the titan of classicism, worlds apart. Well, actually, their worlds are contiguous, even overlapping. And among the stylistic legacies inherited by Berlioz are most strikingly those very chromatic ambiguities we were listening to earlier in Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata. And again, it was Berlioz's historic mission to seize on those ambiguities and magnify them to gigantic proportions. So it's after all not so surprising that in the decade directly following Beethoven's death, Berlioz was spinning this extraordinary series of notes. This subtly tinted thread, as modern in its way as a contemporary tone row, is the opening phrase of a movement from Berlioz, Romeo and Juliet which he called a dramatic symphony. By dramatic, he meant that Shakespeare's drama is told 
musically with added choral and solo voices, but all the great moments are purely orchestral, the really great moments, like the street fight, Mercutio's Queen Mab speech, the ball scene, the balcony scene, the tomb scene, all these are told by the orchestra alone in highly pictorial terms. Now we're about to hear one of these symphonic movements performed on tape by the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and I'd like to prepare you for some of the ambiguous beauties to come, not the least of which is the semantic ambiguity of having to listen to this music on two levels. Now this 10-minute excerpt, or 12 minutes, I don't know, it depends on my mood, I can play it awfully slowly, uh, but it's around 10 minutes. This excerpt depicts the scene early in the play uh, when Romeo is about to meet Juliet at the Capulet Ball. They haven't met yet. He's alone, lovesick, vague, restless, waiting for his imminent destiny. And Berlioz captures this ambiguous ambience by spinning those notes I just played, a solitary melodic line with no harmony at all underneath it. The harmonies are all implied, but which harmonies? What is implied by that last E-flat? Or by this A-flat? Or this D-flat? They are all non-diatonic tones, chromatic tones on the fringes of F major. Or is it F minor? Both are implied, and that's already a basic ambiguity. Now, if you noticed, all three of those dubious notes I pointed out occur in little chromatic descents, dying falls, imitating lovesick sighs, now that's tone painting. That's the very thing Beethoven insisted he was not doing. But Berlioz still reminds us that he's Beethoven's disciple by punctuating this vague opening phrase with a lightly plucked touch of the dominant triad. His ambiguity, you see, is still being classically contained in a tonal framework. There's no doubt what that is, or where we are. But once having reminded us, he is then free to go on immediately to new ambiguities. So here's his second phrase, a totally foreign key, E minor, now with rising chromatic size. And now we seem to land in E major. But no more chromatic vagueness, and we're back in F. Well, it seems like good classical containment, but not for long, because here's F sharp minor. Or is it? No, it's F. You see, the music is trying hard to establish this tonic key of F major, even while it's wandering on, moody and unstable. And just as it succeeds in reaching a solid F major cadence, which is already three or four minutes into the piece, uh, there is a sudden interruption. Let's see, the cadence is reached like this. 
sudden interruption. Very softly, the distant rhythms of the Capulet ball intrude on Romeo's consciousness. And here's a new ambiguity, surprising as an alarm clock. Observe, Romeo's reverie is just reaching that cadential close in F when it's interrupted by the dance music in D-flat major. Not exactly interrupting, you see, but rather coinciding with the end of the cadence. You follow what I mean? Here's the end of the cadence coming up, and it's the beginning of the surprise. In other words, that final F of the cadence, which is the tonic note, is suddenly not the tonic, but the third degree of a whole other scale, D-flat. Now this is called in the trade an enharmonic modulation, based on the well-tempered fact that the note F is common to both keys, F major and D flat major. You hear? F, same note, in D flat. And so that instant in musical time of expecting one harmony and getting another, that mighty principle of the violation of expectation, is really a double instant, an immeasurable instant of ambiguity achieved through a device musicians call a deceptive cadence. Now, in that deceptive instant, we hear, so to speak, both tonalities at once. We hear the F major tonality because it's in our inner ear since we anticipate it, but we never get to hear it. But that's what's in our inner ear. And then we hear, actually hear, the D flat major because it's actually sounded, violating our expectation. And the actual dance tune over that rhythm is, of course, created straight out of those sighing chromatic descents we heard in Romeo's Reverie. Those lovesick sighs. And by transformation, you see, it's now become dance music, highly rhythmic. It's only a short flash, one phrase carried by the breeze from the Capulet Palace but it's just enough to stir up new ambiguities in Romeo, shifty chromatic tremors. You see how exact Berlioz is about his meanings, about the semantic meanings, the non-musical meanings. Now, Romeo is all stirred up by shifty feelings, chromatic feelings, tremors. Shall I go to the ball or not? After all, I'm a Montague, an enemy. I'm strangely moved to go, drawn by that dance rhythm. And so Romeo sings, or rather the oboe sings, a clear diatonic love song. Diatonic, non-chromatic, because it is now a clear decision to attend the festivity, right? And this song is always punctuated by that distant magnetic dance rhythm. Another ambiguity, but a perfectly clear one, belonging uniquely to the art of music, Romeo's song and the ball music together. Only in music can two such disparate messages travel simultaneously and not only be distinctly perceived as counterpoint, but actually reinforce each other. 
Uh, certainly the most striking case of this musical simultaneity, literally double entendre, hearing double, occurs at the climax of this movement, the ball, when Romeo has arrived at the dance the festivities and the dance music is now brilliant and full out and he sees Juliet and he dances with her, all in clear, joyful F major. And at this moment, we actually hear two musics together. Half the orchestra is batting out the beat of the dance music. <laughs> While the other half is blaring out in full cry, Romeo's love song. This is, if you recall, a clear case of contrapuntal syntax, a mechanism of ambiguity that's possible only in musical terms. And this double event is constantly reinforced by the simultaneous contradiction of that bright diatonic sound and the chromaticism of Romeo's yearning, which persists throughout the dance music in upper voices and in the middle voices, as you'll hear, and right up to the end in the bass. And the whole piece is a triumph of ambiguities. Let's listen to it now. And um, any of you who would like to follow the score with me at the desk are welcome to gather around and do so. Roll that tape.
What a piece. Now that Romeo excerpt is a beautiful case in point. A brilliant illustration of deliberately exploiting ambiguity for aesthetic reasons, for increased expressive power. But ambiguous and beautiful as it is, it's only a hint of what's to come two decades later. Take that lonely opening phrase we just heard at the beginning with its ascending forth and its chromatic dying fall and stretch that forth to a minor sixth with the same chromatic dying fall. And what have you got? Tristan, of course. Now take Berlioz's second phrase, which does indeed begin with a rising sixth and continues in a chromatic climb. And what have you got? Isolde. Now put them together. And what have you got? Tristan and Isolde. See, the derivation of the Wagner from the Berlioz seems all too clear. For that history-making opening phrase of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde is, in fact, the conjoining of two sub-phrases, one on top of the other. The question is, who's on top? It seems a clear case of Wagnerian robbery, or to put it more politely, borrowing. But uh, it's subtler than that. It's rather a phenomenon of transformational grammar in the most Chomskyan sense, where one surface structure, namely Berlioz, has become the deep structure of another surface structure, namely Wagner's. The transformations are extremely clear. The extension of the opening interval by enlarging the fourth to the sixth, and then the conjoining of the two strings. quite unconsciously borrowed, of course, although we know of Wagner's almost envious admiration for Berlioz, Romeo, and Juliet. We might say, in the semantic terms of our last lecture, that Tristan and Isolde is a giant metaphor of Romeo and Juliet. It's a lot to say, but it's irresistible. There are just too many instances of this Romeo into Tristan metaphor throughout the opera. Only recall the dance music of the ball scene we just heard. And now hear Isolde's panting anticipation at the start of Act Two of Tristan. Just another remarkable coincidence? Well, <coughs> here's another, which we just heard, Romeo in Love. the simple extension of a third to a fourth, it's expanded into Tristan in love. Wow. And these examples are only a few among very many. We haven't even touched Berlioz's great love scene, the balcony scene, with its throbbing passions. 
goes on to this famous climax. I don't even have to play you Wagner's metaphor for that one, but I want to anyway. My purpose in all this is not to expose Wagner as a plagiarist, but as a transformational magician. I want to show to what extent a tonal language can grow from artist to artist, growing in expressivity and in magnitude over a span of a mere 20 years, just as we can see it grow from Haydn to Beethoven, or from Scriabin to Stravinsky. The examples are all through history. This happens to be a particularly striking one. And with this growth, there always comes the inevitable increase in ambiguity. Tristan is the very peak of ambiguity, the turning point after which music could never be the same again, because it points musical history directly toward the upcoming crisis of the 20th century. And this is because Tristan exploits ambiguity fully in all three of the linguistic modes we've discussed. Phonologically, for example, the highly chromatic opening bars of the prelude have fascinated analytical minds for over a century. What key are we in? Maybe no key at all. Did that cadence on the dominant seventh indicate A minor? But the dominant never resolves to the A minor tonic. Instead, there's a long pause and the phrase is repeated higher, more intense, with the rising minor sixth now stretched, transformed to a major sixth. Again ending on a dominant, but in a whole different key. Again, pause. And then again, even higher, more stretched out. ending on yet another dominant. Pause. And this cadence is now echoed an octave higher, as if to say, this could be the one. Is it, says Wagner, reiterating the last two notes? But the harmony, you see, has been dropped out intensifying the ambiguity of the question. And again comes that fragmentation, an octave higher. Is it the one? And then finally, this is it, the original dominant in A minor. But no, the resolution is a deceptive cadence, not A minor at all. In other words, the resolution of all this ambiguity is in itself ambiguous. Is this tonality, or toying with tonality, or simply non-tonality? Wagner keeps you guessing. It's almost as if the extreme chromaticism of this music with its fiercely unappeased sensual desire can no longer be contained in a tonal framework. And this is why Tristan is the crisis work of the 19th century. While thinking about all this the other night, I made myself a diagram, just out of curiosity, 
to determine exactly the comparative frequency of the 12 chromatic tones as they occur in the first two measures of this prelude. I've had it drawn up, and the results are curiously interesting. All 12 tones appear at least once, and this in itself is significant in the light of the 12-tone music to come a century later. It's as though he's exposed a tone row. But there are four tones that predominate in that they occur more than twice. And these four tones, G-sharp, F, D, and B, happen to form a diminished seventh chord. Now, don't fret. I'm not going to explain that. But it's worth your knowing that the diminished seventh chord is the most ambiguous of all tonal formations. And for that reason, it became the favorite, even basic, ambiguous chord of all the romantic composers. Maybe I should explain it a bit, after all. Every diminished seventh chord is capable of at least four different resolutions, which gives any such chord a minimum four-way ambiguity. Now, take this one we were just looking at, for instance. It can resolve here. And it can resolve here. And it can resolve here. And it can resolve here. At least those four. There are many more resolutions I won't go into. No wonder the Romantics seized on this chord. It's so wondrously useful for all ambiguous situations, such as moody meandering. Where would Tchaikovsky be without that? Or noisy confusion. Where would Liszt be without that? Or abrupt, abrupt uh, dramatic suspense, as in uh, Carmen. Suspense, tension, what's going to happen? Ambiguity. Now, the remarkable thing is that no diminished seventh chord actually occurs in these first two bars of the Tristan prelude. In fact, none occurs at all in the whole prelude. There are some people who insist that uh, it does occur, but I'm of the opinion that there isn't one. Uh, I'll argue about, anybody, about that with anybody who cares to take up the subject. Uh, the diminished seventh chord, as I see it, is only suggested by the prevalence of these four tones casting their ambiguous shadow, and thus their presence is felt hovering over the music as a diminished seventh chord, even though it's not there at all. Now ask yourselves, is that prevalence the result of calculation on Wagner's part? Now, all my instincts tell me no. It must have been an unconscious action or a subconscious action. For me, this is a perfect model of linguistic transformation at work, converting this hidden deep structure into a metamorphosed surface structure in which it is no longer even perceptible. Now, of course, all this chromatic ambiguity is reinforced to a great degree by the syntactic vagueness of the structure. Actually, this prelude is anything but a vague structure. It's very tightly knit together, but Wagner deliberately imposes upon it syntactic ambiguities 
to make it seem languishing, mysterious, and timeless. Timeless, that's the clue. The utter slowness of it all. Langsam und schmachtend, he writes on it. And then the interminable written out silences between the phrases. Four. And then the question of whether that first note was an upbeat or a downbeat. How can we tell? There's no meter to give us a clue. And by the way, how did we know that the corresponding phrase in Romeo began on a downbeat? Which it did. They sound exactly alike. There's no way to tell. And all these ambiguities, and many more, conspire to plunge us into a new dimension of time, quite different from anything before in music. It's a time which no longer ticks by, or even dances or saunters by. It proceeds imperceptibly as the moon moves, or as leaves change their color. And this is what gives Tristan its true semantic quality, quite apart from the obvious semantic facts of the text of Wagner's own poetry, of characters and magic potions and betrayal, and quite apart from leitmotifs signifying desire or death or whatever. I'm speaking of musical semantics as we've come to know it as the sum of phonological and syntactic transformations producing this highly poetic metaphorical language. And in this sense, Tristan is supreme. It's one long series of infinitely slow transformations, metaphor upon metaphor, from that mysterious first phrase through to the climactic heights of passion or of transfiguration, right to the end. I could even devise a deep structure for that opening phrase that would show you the final Liebestod already present in nucleus form, embedded, so to speak, in that one phrase. Look, in that phrase there are two appoggiaturas. Remember those leaning tones we were talking about before? The first one occurs here and resolves, as it should, there. And the second one is here, resolving here. Now, by simply deleting those two dissonant tones, we get this. Now, that's one possible deep structure nucleus arrived at by deleting two appoggiaturas. Now we subject that embryo to a series of transformations, including inversion and others I won't go into, and we arrive at this. And by further transformation and inversion, we get this. Once we support that line with pure diatonic triads, freed from all chromatic writhing and tortuous frustration, we reach the final transfiguration. 
end is my beginning, said T.S. Eliot. Let's hear them both now, the beginning and the end of Tristan and Isolde.
That may be the slowest performance of Tristan on record, but uh, it was deliberate, and it's the way I see Wagner's score, and not only the way I see it, but what Wagner writes in his score. And I think if I've succeeded at all, it's to convey that essence of timelessness that I was talking about earlier, where you stop all the clocks in the world and you operate only in terms of Wagner's clock, which is, of course, an extraterrestrial one. I don't know, I think after that music, uh, I can do nothing but suggest a brief pause. And uh, I'll see you in a moment. And so music can never be the same again. The gates of chromaticism have been flung open, those golden gates of the golden age, which were the outer limits of ambiguity, standing firm in diatonic majesty. But now that they're open, now that Berlioz and Chopin and Schumann and Wagner have pushed them open, we're in new tonal fields that are apparently limitless. We're bounding and leaping from one ambiguity to the other, from Berlioz to Wagner to Bruckner and Mahler to Debussy and Scriabin and Stravinsky. It's a dizzying adventure, this romantic romp, shedding one inhibition after another, indulging in newer and ever more illicit ambiguities, piling them on, stringing them out, daring them to take over for nearly a whole century. But how ambiguous can you get before the clarity of musical meaning is lost altogether? How far can music romp through these new chromatic fields without finding itself in uncharted terrain, in a wild forest of sharps and flats? Are there no further gates of containment? Perhaps not golden ones, perhaps only dry stone walls or rude fences. Well, of course there are, or rather were, until they began to crumble under the attack of the new century. These tonal fences, walls of formality, somehow still managed to contain the rampage of chromaticism, even through the crises of Tristan and Isolde, and of Pelias and Melisande, and the Rite of Spring. But ultimately, a supreme crisis did arrive, a crisis that remains unresolved to this day, and it's over half a century old. And as I said way back in the first lecture, if we're ever to face up squarely to Ives' unanswered question, if we're ever to understand this crisis, we must first understand what brought it about, how we got into this pickle in the first place. So in the remainder of this lecture, I'm going to try to give you a sense of this critical turn by examining and then listening to one short piece plucked out of musical history at a moment of particular stress, 
Debussy's Prelude à l'après-midi d'un faune, The Afternoon of a Faune, one of the last ditch stands of tonal and syntactic containment, exactly as was the Mallarmé poem on which it's based. This enchanted faun came into being just before the turn of the century, at a moment when all the arts were standing on the brink of radical change. Not just stylistic change, I mean radical change. The tugs and strains that were wrenching at figurative painting had already produced Impressionism. The representational object was fast disappearing into washes of color, suggestive formations, chromatic, pointillistic fantasies. Cubism is around the corner, abstractions in the wind. And poetry has begun to show a remarkable disintegration of syntax, a diffusion of meaning or of logical continuity that intoxicates the mind. The heart aches a bit too readily. A drowsy numbness pains the sense. A decadent aestheticism turns the horizon mauve in that last mauve decade. Salome, Des Essentes, Dorian Gray are all standing in the wings. And everywhere hovers a delicious vagueness, a highly charged ambiguousness of dreams, images, and symbols. Baudelaire drifting in volupté, Rimbaud drifting in his bateau ivre, and Mallarmé turning himself on with anti-semantic pills turning himself into a sort of fawn, sort of remembering, perhaps dreaming, perhaps dallying with sort of nymphs, perhaps a couple, or is he one of the couple? Or was it Sicily? Where, when, who, what? All are submerged into the how, the ever-present now. Good Lord, I'm doing it myself. Mallarmé and I are drunk on chromatics. Phonology is taking over, you see. Syntax is a vague memory of something once learned. If all the arts, as Walter Pater said, aspire to the condition of music, then Mallarmé's poem is sure getting close. And when Debussy turns the faun into music, it's Mallarmé's dream come true. A drowsy numbness does indeed invade this opening bar. Where are we? In what key are we hearing this flute of Pan? It's in no key at all. Well, maybe E major. Oh yes, definitely E major. But then, here's vagueness again. Resolving to the most unlikely chord possible the dominant seventh of E-flat major. E-flat, but it was just E major a second ago, wasn't it? Well, E-flat, E-natural. How easily they could be confused in this faunish dream. And now where? What? Nowhere, a bar of silence. Six slow, silent beats of no music, just as in Wagner's Prelude to Tristan. But do we know there are six beats? How do we count silence? Do we care? Not at all. We dream on. 
Again, that delicious wash of vagueness. And again, the dominant seventh, prolonged. Prolonged. It's lovely, this dreaming along with Debussy, but it's no way to analyze music. We want to understand the vagueness, right? Not just bathe in it. And so we must wake up and look clearly at what we've just heard. What about that opening phrase of Pan's flute? Well, the first thing that strikes us is the highly chromatic nature of this phrase, as it languorously dips and rises between the two poles of G natural and C sharp. Now, those two melodic poles tell us something crucially important to the whole piece. They define the interval of the augmented fourth, an interval known as the tritone. That is, it's a span of three whole tone steps. One step, two steps, three steps. Now this tritone interval has always had a peculiar significance throughout musical history since it bluntly contradicts the basic concept of diatonic tonal meaning that tonic dominant function that we found in the very first lecture to be at the heart of the harmonic series. Remember that? Those first overtones? And do you hear the diatonic stability of those intervals? G to C, a perfect fourth, dominant tonic, the root factor of all tonality as we observed it last week in the Beethoven Pastoral Symphony and even in the Berlioz that we heard earlier although used much more ambiguously, as you recall. But now in Debussy's form, that essential interval of the perfect fourth becomes an augmented fourth, which is a tritone, the most unstable interval there is, the absolute negation of tonality. And it is this interval, this so unsettled and unsettling interval that the early church fathers declared it unacceptable and illegal, calling it diabolus in musica, the devil in music. It's precisely this interval of the tritone that Debussy adopts as his basic structural principle. And this is our leading clue to penetrating the vagueness and ambiguity of the piece as a whole, which carries out, mind you, to the very end all the harmonic implications of that initial tritone. For example, do you remember when we were dreaming along with Debussy, how after these vague opening bars, there came the first su suggestion of a key, E major, and how that briefly suggested tonality instantly slipped away in a wash of sound that left us floating in distant waters, this dominant seventh chord. But now we can see why this, of all chords, was Debussy's choice. Because the root of that chord is B-flat. And B-flat is exactly a tritone away from E, which is where we thought we were. There's B-flat, there's E, the tritone, the devil. And then in the ensuing bar of silence, we are left to float in blissful indecision between the two possibilities. B-flat, E, silence. 
you begin to understand what I mean by Debussy's carrying out harmonic implications of the tritone. And equally important is the realization that this music is not just drowsily improvised, but carefully composed, intentionally designed to produce a specific ambiguous effect, which is a far cry from the conventional Hollywoodish idea of the moody composer improvising a vague dream in which anything can happen anywhere, Cornell Wilde or whoever it is. On the contrary, the fawn is a masterpiece of structure. In fact, the ending of this piece finally confirms that it was all conceived in the key of, a, of E major right from the beginning, that very key that was first so tentatively suggested. In other words, it not only ends in E major, but throughout its course, it is constantly referring to, or reverting to, or flirting with E major, or some diatonic relative thereof. And these clear tonal references occur every time there's a point of repose, a cadential close of an episode, or the arrival of a new one. And where the ambiguity arises is that between these points, of tonal articulation. Debussy is just as consistently misleading us, just like Gerard Manley Hopkins, deliberately leading our ears astray, away from those diatonic landmarks, by all kinds of phonological maneuvers and superchromatic freedoms, most of them, in fact, all of them if you analyze it, evolving out of the basic tritone principle enunciated in the opening bars. Let me show you briefly what I mean. Here we are in our B-flat seventh chord, right? Tritonically alienated from the E natural that had been teasing us into tonality. And then back we go to our opening tune. The exact same notes only now harmonized, but harmonized how? In D major, foiled again. The promise of E major has been broken. But wait, what's this? We are in E major after all, but only for a flirtatious instant. Back we go to our B flat seventh chord, into it, and right out again. More chromatic side slipping, leading us into not again. Yes, the same B flat seventh chord. And yet again. Why this insistence? Why does Debussy want to stamp that B flatness so firmly in our ears? because the promise of E major is now about to come true. And he doesn't want us to see it coming. He wants to prepare us for it as ambiguously as possible, as far away from it as possible. Therefore, on the tritone, B flat. And when it finally does come, a happy arrival, the opening tune is heard for the third time, but now clearly, and beyond all doubt, in our long-promised and hungrily wished-for E major.
at last. And this is what I meant by a point of repose, an arrival. And this new episode then proceeds quite lucidly in peaceful E major tonality up to its climax. subsides into the first real definite cadence of the piece and wonder of wonders this cadential point of repose is in B major the dominant of E major just as it's supposed to be in the books following the most classical tradition then where is ambiguity now what's happened to vagueness to the very point of this piece Ah, but that is the point, that the larger overall ambiguity derives from this very interplay between the chromatic wanderings and these landmarks of tonal articulation. It's the same phenomenon we observed in Mozart and again in Berlioz and in Wagner. Chromaticism contained in diatonicism. Only here the chromaticism is enormously magnified and if I may hop back to my earlier beat-up metaphor, there are still those tonal fences to contain it. They're a bit shaky, but they're standing. For instance, hardly have we had time to rest in our classical dominant cadence of B major when a new contradiction breaks out. It's all based on that original tritone of G natural and C sharp, only now elaborated into a new formation called the whole tone scale. Do you sense that new special ambiguity? It's the sound of the whole tone scale, a unique invention of Debussy's directly derived from that original tritone. It's not difficult to see how this new scale came to exist if you only recall that the interval of the tritone is actually a span embracing three whole tones. Let's say we start on C sharp, right? And then proceed by whole tone steps. One, two, three, and we've landed on G natural, the other pole of the tritone, right? Now watch, if we simply repeat the procedure, starting from this G natural where we landed, and again go up three whole tones, one, two, three, lo and behold, we're back to C sharp. Again, only an octave higher. In short, we've got a scale, that whole tone scale. See, what's actually happened is this, the octave span, C sharp to C sharp, instead of being divided diatonically the usual way or chromatically which would be 12 equal half steps is now divided into six equal whole steps you see them starting c sharp then one two three four five six back to c sharps c sharp you get six whole tones get it with that tritonic G natural at the exact midpoint of the octave between the two C sharps. But what's most important is that we've got a scale that cannot function tonally. 
that cannot produce a tonic or a dominant relation. And why is this? Because the scale, by its very nature, doesn't contain intervals of the fifth and the fourth, which, as you well know, are the first and strongest overtones of the harmonic series, and therefore the bread and butter of tonality. So no fifths and fourths, no tonic and dominant, no bread and butter. And by extension, there can obviously not be a circle of fifths either, and therefore no traditional modulations are possible. This whole tone scale is self-limiting, autistic, so to speak. In short, it is atonal, the first organized atonal material ever to appear in musical history. And because of its atonal nature, this new scale suddenly produced the most ambiguous sounds ever heard in music in this piece about a fawn. Sorry. And just when we're beginning to feel utterly lost in these atonal woods, I did get lost in them, as a matter of fact, Debussy again reaches one of his points of repose, and we're home again, in E major at that, saved by the fence. But for a moment there, we were on the brink. Sheer phonology was becoming too important too interested in itself, a goal of its own, and almost at the expense of semantic clarity. It's almost exactly what happens in the Mallarmé poem, where the images and symbols pile up in such alliterative profusion and with such seeming irrelevance and incongruity that reading it, we often feel a wash in sound, ravishing sound to be sure, but we feel equally at sea as far as comprehension is concerned. And again, in literary terms, it's a case of phonology threatening to take over at the expense of meaning, and in fact, to produce meanings of its own. This is very subtle stuff and very hard to describe because it involves the mysteries of the creative process itself, and thus it's terribly hard to pinpoint it. But let me have one stab at it. In Mallarmé's poem, the faun has just been recalling a dream image. On the banks of a calm Sicilian pool, he has been cutting the hollow reeds to be subdued by talent, as he puts it. Les creux roseaux domptés par le talent. An image, in other words, of the birth of music. And at that moment, éco prélude lent, the moment he calls a slow prelude, he has a vision of a flight of swans, no, naiads, he says, running away or diving. You see, it's ambiguity all the way. You just never know which. Naiads, swans, are they running, are they, are they diving? You, you never know. And just at this point come the following two lines. As the faun recalls the dream, sans marquer par quel art Ensemble d'étala, trop d'hymen, souhaité de qui cherche le la. Literally translated and therefore even fuzzier in meaning, it says, 
without noticing by what art there ran off together too much hymen desired by him who is seeking a natural. <laughs> I won't even try to interpret that further. I would like only to point out that the word la, meaning the note a, stands at the end of a line where it rhymes identically with the last word of the preceding line, detala, meaning ran off. And I am asking if it's not therefore possible that the symbolic word la was born phonologically rather than syntactically, that it was motivated by its inherence in the earlier word detala, which coming so soon after the musical idea of prelude in turn suggested the musical association of la. I'll try to ask it more clearly. Might it not be that the la image was created not because the poet had intended to invoke it, because he had some meaningful idea in his mind and was looking for a structural way of saying it, but rather that the image was phonologically suggested in the preceding line. And I am proposing that this is only one of hundreds of such creative mechanisms in this poem, all examples of a phonological takeover at the expense of syntactic and semantic clarity. But notice, too, that the example I've been discussing involves rhyme, in fact, a rhymed couplet. And so it becomes instantly clear that Mallarmé, too, has his fences, his structural and tonal fences, so to speak. Just as the vaguenesses of Debussy are protected by those clear cadential resolutions, by classically stable interrelated keys, so Mallarmé's dream within a dream is contained in equally classical structural forms in perfect Alexandrine rhymed couplets. It's almost a shock to realize that this vaguest of poems with its elusive but strongly evocative images is written from beginning to end in strict hexameters. What's more, Mallarmé clearly indicates distinct episodes within the poem by putting them into italics and surrounding them with quotation marks. And these episodes, amazingly enough, are analogous to similar episodes in Debussy's musical counterpart. In other words, both the poem and the music preserve a clarity of structural articulation in spite of all vaguenesses. The poem and the music are both high on phonology pills, but in both cases, the high or the, the heightened consciousness or whatever psychedelic term you care to use is rationally contained. Both works have definite beginnings and ends, for instance, which provide frameworks that greatly aid perceptibility. And that's not so odd. I mean, most of these vague uh, poems and pieces of music that were to follow the fun did not have clear beginnings and ends. Mallarmé begins with a forthright statement. For example, I wish, I wish to perpetuate these nymphs. Though inevitably, there's a little twist. Ces nymphes, je veux les perpétuer. An inversion of word order, where the normal sentence would read simply, je veux perpétuer ces nymphes. And in the same way, Debussy's opening is a clear flute melody, but with his little twist, that well-known tritone. And Mallarmé's ending is also clear enough in its intention. Il faut dormir, we must sleep. 
couple adieu, a clear farewell, though again with its dreamy twist, je vais voir l'ombre que tu devins, I go to see the shadow that you became. And similarly, Debussy's ending is a clear farewell, yet sicklied o'er with the pale cast of the tritone. It's amazing, this ending, because it's so definite and yet indefinite at the same time. It is, as I told you, an E major, and the closing bars are as clearly terminal as an amen. In fact, they do say amen twice. Listen as I play those last bars. I'm going to alter one note, this A sharp, which is the tritone in our key of E. The twister, the wrong note, so to speak. I'm going to remove the sharp from it, making the note a natural, which does belong to the key of E. Right? And through this simple alteration, you'll clearly hear two amens, plagal cadences as they are known, just as they are heard in church at the end of hymns. Of course, Debussy's version does have the twist, that tritonic A-sharp. And so his Amen comes out a bit mistier, more ambiguously, but Amen's nevertheless and perfectly consistent with the tritone principle that has been operative since the very first bar. So now they sound like this. are fun. Now let's hear the Boston Symphony play it. And as you listen, bear in mind that while it was first being played by the same orchestra around 70 years ago, much of the audience was streaming out of Symphony Hall, muttering darkly of crazy modern music. And now you know why.
some crazy modern music, huh? It's an essay in E major, actually, in a parallel way to the pastoral being an essay in F major, tonic and dominant. But still, those people who went streaming out 70 years ago, muttering darkly of modern music, crazy modern music, had something because they sensed that this fawn was pointing in that direction toward total ambiguity. One more step and you're there in fenceless chromaticism. And actually it was to be only one short decade before that crisis did in fact arrive. And I hope that this analytic session has prepared you in some ways to understand that crisis when we come to it in our next lecture on the 20th century. Couple adieu.